We're not going to look at the whole prayer today. We're going to look at the first five verses. So let me just read those to refresh your memories. Jesus has just been speaking to his disciples about what's going to be happening. He's spoken about sending the Holy Spirit. He's spoken about the disciples grieving while the rest of the world rejoices. He said they won't see him and then they'll see him again. It's all a bit mysterious. Then he tells them that in this world they'll have trouble, but they must take heart because he's overcome the world. And then he looks towards heaven and he prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. This prayer has been called the High Priestly Prayer because in it, Jesus is praying for, uh, for his disciples, his current disciples, his future disciples, and in his role, he's taking on the role of a high priest interceding for his people. But um, I would argue, and others have also argued, that you might call this the Lord's Prayer because this is the prayer that the Lord prays. And I tend to think of it as the Lord's Prayer. Now, you might think that this is something that the, the disciples sort of accidentally overheard, you know, just if you heard the prayer by itself. Um, and I know, I'm sure we've all been in the situation, maybe when we were young, where we, uh, perhaps we've been put to bed by our parents and we snuck out just to, you know, hear what the grown-ups were doing and maybe heard something that was a bit of a giveaway or something that we didn't need to hear or something that was, wasn't meant for our ears. Um, this prayer is not that. This prayer is very much prayed deliberately in the hearing of his disciples because he wants them to hear what he has to say, how he is praying for them, how he is praying for himself. And in this, as in he is in everything, he is our pattern for those of us who believe and follow him as his disciples. He gives us an example of the way to do things. Of course, our mission is not exactly the same as his. He alone came as the saviour of the world, of course. He alone is the son of God. But he prays as one who has been sent. And he sends us too into the world, those of us who follow him as his disciples. So here we have a pattern here of how he prays to his father and our father. And I think it's worth pausing here just to contemplate the idea that Jesus is praying to his Father and he invites us to pray to the same Father. That we share the same Father as Jesus if we're believers in Jesus. Now, this might just be a very commonplace, you're used to this kind of an idea, but I think sometimes it's good just to remind ourselves of how amazing and staggering that is. Let's think about who's listening to this prayer. People like 
The fishermen I was talking about with the kids earlier, Peter, James, and John, people that Jesus had called at the beginning of his ministry to follow him, to, to be catchers of men. This prayer happens at the end of this season of ministry. Three years they've been on the road with him, men and women. Uh, so along with Peter and James and John, there are the women who travel with him as well, help to support his ministry. People who had encountered him and let their lives be completely changed by him. They'd left behind respectability, status, family, normality, just to follow this strange, amazing teacher. Jesus is perhaps now a more respectable person to be following or worshipping, but back then, for the first listeners of this prayer, he was, he was not a respectable figure. He wasn't a respectable rabbi. He was a bit of a rabble-rouser in some ways. The gift of the time that we live in now is perhaps that Jesus has become a bit more uh, mysterious. Um, we're all living in a secular age. Jesus has become a bit more of a strange figure. He's almost been rewilded by our, our society. He's a bit of an unknown, buried under ideas about what the church is or what, um, what scripture is even. He's not respectable. He's not, he's not seen as a respectable figure necessarily in the same way that he used to be. And certainly for the first hearers of this prayer, the people following him, they were, they were not seen as respectable either. They'd kind of gone off piste a little bit. Very diverse, rich people, poor people, tax collectors, fishermen, laborers like Jesus himself. And as I mentioned before, women of high standing and low standing. This is one of two public prayers in John's account of Jesus' life. The first one happens back in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, just before he raises Lazarus. Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, he prays, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here that they might believe you sent me. So here we are again with a real prayer that Jesus is praying deliberately in front of others to teach them to show them who he is, to show them who God is. That they might believe that he was sent by God. As I mentioned before, Jesus has just been telling the disciples, his followers, that things are about to get really rocky, really tough. Some of them will desert him. He's going to be put on trial. He's told them that he's going to send someone to help them, the Holy Spirit. He's going to be with them and remind them of all the things that he's taught them. He's explained that he's going where no one can follow him. He's told them that the world will hate them just as it hates him and that they can expect trouble, but that he has overcome the world. And before they could even start arguing amongst themselves or with him or asking questions about what all of this means, he just looks up. Before the service began, I was talking to someone at the back of the church, a family at the back of the church, who were all looking up at the ceiling and speculating about how many giants you could get in the room. But what was funny was, as they were looking at everyone that kind of was in this conversation, we were all looking up. You could probably imagine Jesus is saying all these things to his disciples, and they're all just stunned, and he looks up and starts to pray just lifts their gaze 
just reminds them that it's not just him and them, but it's him and them and God in heaven. This is the way that Jews prayed, by looking up. It's interesting, now we pray often by looking down and closing our eyes. It's the opposite way around. Jesus lifts their gaze. Whatever, whatever our posture is, the way we talk when we pray to God shows what we think we know about God and how we see our relationship with him. And Jesus talks to God as if God knows him, as if he knows God. It's very much an insider conversation for the benefit of outsiders, wanting to draw them in, wanting them to know God as he does. He's already explained that he's going ahead of them into glory and that he's going to prepare a place for them. He said this to them a few chapters ago. But now he wants them to know where he's going and who he's going to. So he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. Things are on schedule, he's saying. Things are going as they should. He is exactly where he's meant to be. Now glorify your son, he says. Now the scholar Leon Morris sees the word glorified as a special word that John uses to speak about Jesus' service, Jesus lowering himself to describe the perfect humility of his service on earth. And the way that Jesus asks to be glorified here is sort of shocking because the glorification, the glorification that he's speaking about is actually his death. It's his crucifixion. The worst thing a first century person could imagine happening to them was death by crucifixion. A public, naked execution. Lifted up high on a pole where everyone could see you slow, agonizing, humiliating death. And yet, this is the path by which Jesus asks God to glorify him by allowing him to experience the worst humanity can do to those it considers the worst of the worst. God doesn't do things the way that we would. Those of us who have, who've been here listening to this series that Chris has been doing, Isaiah will perhaps remember from Isaiah 55, that God is not like us. He doesn't think the way, that we do, the way that we do. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. On my recent trip abroad, uh, I was very blessed to hear the testimony of a, Korea, a woman from North Korea who had been imprisoned for escaping to South Korea. Thankfully, they didn't know that she was a Christian. Otherwise, she wouldn't have made it into prison at all. She would just have been executed. But she was sent to prison, and while she was there, she took the opportunity to convert large numbers of inmates in the only place where they could meet without being disturbed by the guards, which was the toilet block, the most disgusting and least busy part of the prison. God used this brave woman to minister to people where no one would think of looking, 
And we can look for God in the most unexpected places, often places of shame, places we will consciously avoid. Jesus came from the highest heights of pre-existence with God to the depths of a shameful execution, willing to suffer for God's honour. Glorify me, Father, Jesus prays, as only you can. He needed to be lifted up, exalted, so that everyone who believed could have eternal life. Now, there's a little bit of a play on words here, because the version of scriptures that Jesus and his contemporaries would have had would have been the Greek translation of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, where the word for glorify and exalted are the same. And it is actually being lifted up high. Jesus knows that this is the kind of death he's going to die as far back as chapter 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus, who's one of his secret believers, a member of the Sanhedrin, one of the religious elite who's really curious about Jesus and comes to see him by night. And Jesus says to him in chapter 3 and verse 14, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. That reference to being lifted up is a reference to a strange story that we find of Moses and the people of Israel in the desert. It's a very strange story where Moses is told to put a snake on a pole and lift it up so that everyone who is suffering from a snake bite will be saved by looking at this thing on the pole. And this is what Jesus is referencing here. And also Isaiah 52, which we heard from Chris last week. The suffering servant the one who was disfigured beyond human recognition. This is Jesus, the one who's going to be exalted, literally lifted up. And those who believe in him will have eternal life. Jesus prays that God would glorify him in this way. And God has answered this prayer. What importance would a Jewish rabbi have who's been executed on false charges 2,000 years ago in some backwater of the Roman Empire? Why are there two billion believers across the world following him? Why is Jesus one of the most famous names in history? Has not this prayer been answered? So Jesus asks to be glorified, and God answers this prayer. But not just for his sake, but so that God himself is glorified. And we see Jesus do this throughout his ministry, drawing people not to himself, but to his Father. And this is where 
we can take the pattern for ourselves. We too can pray for God to be glorified in our lives, not for our sake, but for the sake of the one that we adore, the one that we love, the one that we worship, Jesus. Everything Jesus does, he does with reference to the Father. He can't glorify the Father unless the Father glorifies him. They are so closely intertwined. The glory of one depends on the glory of the other. We can seek glory for God's sake. Glory for God. In verse 2, he says, You granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you've given him. This verse is all about gifts. Gifts to Jesus and gifts to us. So Jesus is praying in front of this shocked gang of believers who will soon run away. How great and far-reaching is the power and the sovereignty of God. Because God first gave Jesus authority over all flesh, that is, all people. And they've seen that in all the signs he's done. All the followers that have come to join him. The superior teaching, the healings, the miracles. And this authority, this first gift, is so that Jesus can give the second gift to us. And that gift is the gift of life, like Jesus has it, indestructible life, eternal life. Life lived in perfect knowledge and openness to the Father. This is eternal life, he says, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Maybe that description of eternal life might seem a bit of a surprise, bit sort of thin maybe even that eternal life is knowing God not living forever on a cloud eating cake without calories playing a harp having your perfect holiday on repeat I'm sure you have better ideas about eternity than that but you follow my drift we tend to think of eternal life as some amazingly blissful existence and I'm sure it will be but Jesus here defines it as a knowing God. Now, there would have been some confusion in the first listeners to this prayer because for them, eternal life was understood to mean some form of afterlife. But what Jesus speaks about here is life before death. Life in relationship with the only true God and with Jesus Christ the one who his first listeners already knew intimately, personally. They'd already done life with him, eaten with him, walked all over Judea with him. This strange closeness to God, the God Israel knew as Yahweh, so holy they couldn't even say his name. This claim of this kind of closeness is what got Jesus into trouble. And still today it's a strange idea that we could have this kind of intimacy with a being holy, pure, perfect, the creator of everything that is seen and unseen, as we say in our creed from time to time. Perhaps this is a strange idea to some of you as well. 
But this prayer is, is recorded here so that we might believe, as everything in John's Gospel is, recorded that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we might have this eternal life, this strange, intimate knowledge. It's knowledge that isn't the kind of knowledge that you might have of an engineer knowing their systems or you knowing the layout of your house, but a knowledge that a husband would have of a wife or a parent would have of a child, relational knowledge, close knowledge. Loneliness, Mother Teresa says, is the leprosy of the West. For many people, knowing anyone seems well, let alone this well, seems like an impossibility. And yet, this is the kind of knowing, the kind of closeness, the kind of intimacy that Jesus offers us. In verse 4, he tells us, I have brought, he tells the Lord, I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. Which seems to be saying the obvious, except that he hasn't yet finished the work he came to do, has he? He hasn't yet died on the cross. Some have used this to argue that his death was not part of his work. But Jesus does speak of things as though they have already happened. Back in chapter 13, when Judas leaves the Last Supper to arrange his betrayal of Jesus, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God through him, even though it hasn't happened yet. He mixes tenses and timings. He throws forward, he throws back. Sometimes he seems to be moving through time in a way that we can't. Humans are limited by time, except in sci-fi movies. But what we can say is that as far as Jesus is concerned, it's done. It's all over, bar his arrest, the trials, the beatings, the mockery, the death sentence, the crucifixion. In Jesus' mind, it's already done. It's accomplished. It's a settled thing. If we take nothing else from this message, we can take this. Whatever we may be experiencing, whether victory over sin or a nagging sense of defeat or confusion or alarm, the work of redemption, the work that Jesus came to do, the work of rescue, is already done in Jesus' mind even before the cross. We can rest in that. He came to pay the price for our sins, and he did that in death. So in the moment of this prayer, even before he's been arrested, Jesus declares that he has finished the work. And our task as believers is to believe him, to live as if this is true. What John is telling us here is that Jesus had already committed to going to death on behalf of sinful humanity. There was never any doubt he was going to see it through. And so in the last verse that we're looking at today, he appears to repeat his request at the beginning to be glorified. In verse 5 he says, 
And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. It may sound like it, but this is not Jesus repeating his request to be glorified in, in the first verse. This is him throwing forward to after he has died and returns to where he first came from. This Jesus, this rabbi from Nazareth, is more than the rabbi from Nazareth. He existed before the beginning, was present at creation. In verse 1, he's asking to be honoured in his death, to be revealed as God by God, something only God can do. But here, he's asking to be restored to what he had before he set out on this incredible mission to save humanity. He's leaving the earth for heaven to take up again the glory that he had in the beginning. It's kind of mind-boggling, but there is now a human being seated in heaven, seated at the right hand of God. And he's doing there what we see him doing here, praying for his people. That means us. So where does this leave you? What are you thinking? I'll tell you what I was thinking when I read all of this. I was thinking, if someone were to overhear me praying, what would, what would they hear? What would they think I thought about God and myself? Would they hear me praying that God would be glorified through my life? Would they hear me praying that God would make my life look, that my life would make God look amazing, worth my attention, worth my time, worth my talents? Worth my denying myself things that the world takes for granted? Of course, we can't pray this exactly as Jesus prayed it. But we can note that Jesus was, Jesus was crystal clear about his relationship with God, about who he was, about who God was. We are not equal to God, obviously. Let's not get confused. But we're brought into the relationship between Jesus and the Father by this prayer. And we'll see that more clearly next week when I go on to talk about the next part of this prayer. And the big clue for us today is that the gift of eternal life comes through knowing Jesus and the Father. So I invite you to think about your prayer life. Think about how you pray. Think about your relationship with God. Do you pray to him as Father? Do you pray for him to be glorified in your life? Do you have a clear sense of what you're doing for God in your life? If you're someone who prays habitually, um, I invite you just to try something new. Just, just try a different way of praying to help you to go forward, go further, to go deeper with God. There are so many resources to help us to pray. And we are a resource for each other in this community. 
there are great prayer warriors here in this community. If praying is something that you only really do when you're in here, let me invite you to consider praying a little bit more. Not in a formal way, but just talking to God as if he is your father. If you've never prayed, I invite you to give it a try this week. It is a gift and a privilege that Jesus allows us to hear how he prays to the Father. He is our pattern in everything, and we can follow his pattern in this. So let us not be shy to approach our Father and to use the pattern of Jesus' prayer for ourselves this week. Amen. Oh,